The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. And welcome back to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm thrilled to be joined by opera director Garnet Bruce. Welcome, Garnet. Thanks a lot. It's great to have you here. You're here, as we record, directing semi-stage production in Abravanel Hall of Bernstein's Candide. What a great project. It's a completely beautiful and wonderful thing to be here with these musicians and to collaborate to uh, put this synthesis yeah. of piece together using the talents from all across your great company. It really does use every corner of our company, doesn't it? It's great. You know, it's Bernstein's 100th, so I know that this piece is getting performed quite a bit. And I would venture to say probably more in the last you know two seasons than in all of the years of its existence leading up to that. I wonder if you've got an opinion about why this piece is never really fully settled into the standard repertory. It just, it well, it's everybody's guilty pleasure. Yeah, I mean, I agree. we've had the recordings and you hear the music that just sort of sends you over the top. Yeah. And there's enough variety in it that there's something for everyone. Sure. But it also goes to 19 different locations. Right. And so when you're lo- talking about doing a physical production of it and then people dying and coming back to life and then, oh, there should probably be dancers and then your desire to fill the frame usually overwhelms your budget. Sure. And then it, we move on to something else. Sure. But it's something that is welcome, I think, in a semi-staged format because then you get the benefit of the orchestra on stage, out of the pit. In the visual palette. And uh, we also don't have to worry about going to all those different locations. You use your imagination. And in this case, I'm using storytelling devices, as many as I can possibly cram on stage at a Bravanel Hall to make sure we know where we are. I wondered if maybe the sort of necessary limits of semi-staging made the story a little easier to tell counterintuitively. Well, I think so, because yeah. it really makes you focus on the ideas. Right. And the idea of optimism, and of course it's corollary, pessimism. Yes, indeed. And uh, what Bernstein is doing to balance them, what Voltaire was doing to balance them. Yeah. Imagine that you were riffing with your friends and improving. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had acres of material to work from. I mean, the first sure. performances in Boston out of town were almost four hours long. Tyrone Guthrie directing, Lillian Hellman writing the script, right. Richard Wilbur on lyrics, and a lot of other people we find out. Yeah, of course. Um, and then probably none of them agreeing and you know, some stage manager going, we open tomorrow, folks. Right. We, we need some consensus on something. <laughs> right. So I, I'm glad you mentioned all those names because I think one of the most interesting things about the history of this piece is that it's got a very complicated provenance. You know, it's changed hands libretto-wise a lot over the years. Can you talk a bit about that tangled history and what version will audiences be seeing here in Salt Lake and how does it compare to the premiere? Well, uh, the premiere was seen a little too stuffy mm-hmm. for the Broadway musical theater types based on what had come before. Sure. Uh, it was heading for big philosophical concepts. Uh, but for the opera house, it was just a little too frivolous. Um, neither, and, neither fish nor fowl. And so, yeah. the, you know, both sides sort of sneered at it. Sure. And it was one of these problems Mr. Bernstein had perpetually that he was not quite understood as a composer, but yeah. really respected as a conductor who could squeeze the drama out mm-hmm. of a moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he hit his stride in West Side Story, which he would write the following year with a different team of collaborators. People don't realize that these pieces are contemporary. Yeah. yeah. They were one right after the other. Yeah, absolutely. And they were his hobby while he was conducting around the world and right. doing Medea at La Scala and, mm-hmm. you know, the rest of his career. Sure. But he believed in them. Yeah. And that's why he dedicated the time to them. Yeah. And... As you look at the garden imagery, the sort of tonal center of these pieces, 
and stuff that people want to hear. Oh my gosh, it's popular. Mm-hmm. Bernstein became sort of a defender of tonalism sure. in the midst of a, as they say, a, a prickly and pointy music era. Well, mid-century American music was obviously going in lots of very strange directions, so he was sort of an anachronism, I think. And he, so you hear both the dissonance and yeah. um, the fun rhythms, and sure. then you get back to the tonal harmonies of, mm-hmm. you know, make our garden grow when we right. get to the end. In 1973, Hal Prince tried his hand at it, and they did it in an off-Broadway, way off-Broadway in Brooklyn mm-hmm. version, which caught fire and ran for three years. It was staged as a circus sex romp, and <laughs> um, everything was played for jokes and bad yeah. jokes, and they reduced the orchestration to 13 players. Interesting. And played it with no intermission uh-huh. in 90 minutes. Wow. And it was a hit. Wow. And so suddenly people were hearing Glitter and Be Gay and Make Your Garden Grow. And, yeah. But Mr. Bernstein always lamented that so much of his really good music was gone. Yeah. And the conductor there, John Cherry, worked with Mr. Bernstein to create what we call the Opera House version in the 80s, which divided the show into two acts, put back a few more of the tunes, right. but basically held on to the circus concept. Sure. So then it was 1989 and the Scottish opera version, which created a new book that Mr. Bernstein felt it was time to put the pieces back together and take control of it himself. I um, do want to talk about 89 because I know you were involved with that Barbican production, right? Yeah. With with Maestro. And I, I can only imagine that that amazing experience continues to become more amazing as you grow older and reflect back on it. I mean, talk about what it was like to be with him in that moment. He he didn't live even another year, I don't believe. That's true. Right? He was uh, only in the nine, last nine months of his life. Right. Just, so, cause he we died, didn't know that at the time. He died in 90, right? He died so, in October of 90. So, I mean, talk about what it was like to see him approach this music at that point in his life. I mean, what was oh, that experience It was like? joy. Yeah. He finally had singers who could sing it really well. Jerry Hadley, June Anderson. Krista Ludwig mm-hmm. and uh, Della Jones and his best pal from way back, Adolph Green, sang Dr. Pangloss. Yeah. And just had all the snide Broadway in there. So Broadway yeah. meets opera in the rehearsal room. Sure. And he had the time of his life. Rehearsals were always going 30, 35 minutes over because he just wanted to hear it again. He yeah. wanted to live it. Yeah. And as a result, we never really fixed the second act. We sort of stuck it all together. And by the time we did that, it was time to go on. Sure. And then everybody got the flu. And then we had cast changes, which are, yeah. you know, hell on wheels. Absolutely. Uh, and then we took it to Abbey Road and did recordings and then doing those piecemeal. So we never really got a flow of the piece yeah. as he would have wanted. And I knew he wanted to go back and tinker with more of it, but his health just prevented him. That's the recording we all know, right? That's the... I think so. Yeah. If you don't know the premiere recording, then you know the this Bernstein one. Yeah. 89. I, I read somewhere, and you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but that he did the narration himself. Yes, that must have been incredible. It was great. And yeah. uh, he had himself a teleprompter, and he had his gravelly voice. <laughs> and But it's marvelous to see him going on about Leibniz and optimism and philosophy and yeah. McCarthy and yeah. communism and uh, all the different sort of troubles of the day. He was a polymath, wasn't he? I mean, he knew a lot about a lot. Well, he loved life. Yeah. And he loved literature, and he yeah. loved art, and he loved artists, and he loved music. And he felt music could change the world. Sure. He really felt that if people sat down, listened, and performed together, that we could find peace in the Middle East, that we could stop the Cold War, that, you know, these were even the social wars and the civil rights. I mean, these were causes that he truly believed in and yeah. he truly explored. And I certainly mentioned that when we're in rehearsal, and mm-hmm. I think the cast feels it as well. Whereas Voltaire would be cynical at the end. Everybody right. should just mind their own garden. Sure. Right. Uh, Bernstein says, no, we need to plant seeds and we need to set an example. 
and it becomes two voices, four voices, eight voices, sure. 80 voices, yeah. and then just sort of is a big bear hug that embraces the entire theater. We'll build our house and chop our wood and make our garden grow and make our garden grow. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, you, you led right into this beautifully. I, I, I feel like opera morals and messages can be very antique and a little, a little corny sometimes, and it's sometimes maybe difficult to translate them into modern thought. But I think if you work hard enough at it, you can find something in all of these Well, stories. it's about giving it time. Yeah. One of the things uh, the director, Peter Sellers, mm-hmm. has talked about is that, you know, think about the time it takes a flower to open and reveal itself, right. whether a rose or a lily. And that doesn't happen in two minutes and 30 seconds. And so sure. you have to set a tempo. Now, I don't mean we need to go to five hours of Wagner, but we need to grab hold of your attention and your tension, and usually between contrasting points, and give you time to sort of live in that room for a moment. Yeah. And then you come out the other side, hopefully a little more meditative. It's a beautiful thought. And I wonder, you know, if you had to distill the message, and you talked about this a little bit with the garden um, uh, metaphor, but if you had to distill the message of this piece, the thing that we today in our world should take away from Candide, what what would it be? Do the best you know and do your work, Mm -hmm. and that will lead to something beautiful if you really believe in what you're doing. Yeah, that's... I think that's a wonderful way to put it. That's a flower worth waiting for, I think. I want to know from you, uh, Garnet, I always ask this question when I get opera people on this because I'd love to pick your brain. If there's an untapped subject, real or imagined, historical, contemporary, anything that you think needs an opera treatment, is there something that hasn't been made into an opera yet that you think really should be? I really actually think the Tolkien books are waiting for some operatic treatment that, you know. Ring length? (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, I know I don't know if we need an entire saga. Yeah, yeah. But I think something about the fellowship mm-hmm. um is calling for a chorus. Yeah. And yeah. a chorus of people with a like mission. Um, you know, I think you know, we'd be chastised for cutting the the spiders or something. Oh, you'd cut <laughs> cut Tom Bombadil out like the movie did and everyone would yell at you. Right. And you know, dragons <laughs> on stage never work. Yeah. I but know. Uh, I mean Siegfried is always a big loser when you right. get to act two. You're like, yeah. that's all? That he's just gonna <laughs> yell through a megaphone. That's yeah. it. <laughs> um but uh, there no, there's something about the spirit of that fantasy. Yeah. Uh, that is fun and could be fun with languages too. I mean Elfin. Absolutely. That's we're a great thought. It, it, Orkish, too. Yeah, right. I mean, if uh, Philip Glass has a singing in Sanskrit. Yeah. How is it possible nobody's tried this yet? You might be onto something. Oh, well, we probably can't get the rights. Yeah, that's probably true. That is probably true. That's a heavily protected uh, brand for sure. Well, this conversation's been amazing, and I think it's wonderful that we're doing Candide. I'm not sure it's ever happened here before in its entirety. Oh, I, well, I know they did a production at the university. Right, um, but f- with the Utah Symphony. I don't, I don't believe so. Not with the so. symphony. Yeah. And, you know, you play the overture, but I think it's important for an audience to know where these pieces come from. Absolutely. And that they have a context. Yeah. And, you know, but whether it's battle music or love music or kaleidoscopic voyage mm-hmm. around the world, yeah. um, you the ports of call, right, yeah. that <laughs> you get to go to Spain, you get to go to Montevideo, you get right. to go to Venice, um, and you go to Broadway, <laughs> 
you know, people say, you know, is, is it opera? Is it operetta? Is it musical? It's all, yes. It's Bernstein. And it's combining everything that he loved at the table. Yeah. Um, for your listeners, if you get it, you want to explore a little bit more, there's a marvelous book by Jonathan Cott. Uh, he had done the final long interview with Mr. Bernstein uh, for Rolling Stone mm-hmm. that came out in January of 1990. Oh. And uh, he had over 15 hours of material to squeeze 15,000 words. So he finally published it in, called Dinner with Lenny. Oh, that's great. And so he published everything else that was on his tapes and his notes along with the Rolling Stone article. Oh, that's article. great. Jonathan Cott, you yeah. said. And, I'm uh, going to look that up. So, I mean, I think that gives you a sort of a window into the soul and the spirit of the man. Yeah. And uh, Jonathan really captured him in a marvelous sort of portrait. Well, very timely with the hundredth, so I'm going to look that up. And maybe, Chad, we can put that in the show notes so that people can find that. Um, one more question, Garnet, if you'll indulge us. It's sort of a tradition on the show because of the name of the podcast. You know, we talk about the ghost light and haunted theaters. And I'm curious, all your years in theaters, you ever met a ghost? You ever seen one? If so, give us some details. I know about sort of a uh, spooky experience in college. We had a ratty old theater, uh, which has since been torn down. Um, And I was working late one night at the office computer because I didn't have one of my own. Mm -hmm. And somebody off the street wandered in and wanted somebody to hear their monologues. Okay. And, well, I'm rare, but we are a theater. The lights were on. Okay. Sure. <laughs> uh, and I'm the only one in the building. Yeah. So perhaps that was ba- a bad idea. And uh, he launches into one of the Macbeth monologues. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, all the theater doors and lobby doors swung shut simultaneously. Come on. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I'm not sure if that was the theater ghost, you know, rejecting our candidate uh-huh. or there was just something a little more. But it's always been one of those eerie, unexplained phenomena. Wow. Which one of those doors did you run out of so, as soon as you could? <laughs> um, I kept my eyes on the subject and then we finished and then we turned out the lights and we left together. Are you certain that that man himself was not a specter? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? What a gr- what Never a, seen from again. What so. a great story. Well, Garner Bruce, thank you for being here with to do Candide with the Utah Symphony, and thank you for being a guest on the Ghost Light Podcast. Thank you so much. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. 